Well, folks, we are continuing in our look at ordinary people living ordinary lives, coming in contact with an extraordinary God. And you already know we're in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, and we're looking at the story of Naaman. Now, characters in the story, we've got the king of Syria, the king of Israel, Naaman, Naaman's wife, the little girl, Elisha, Gehazi, who is the... uh, the servant of Elisha, and then finally the servant of Naaman. So there's eight different people in this story. We're not going to be looking at all of them. But just recognize that they all have a part to play in this, in this story of healing. But there's a few things that I want to focus on. And the two, the two folks specifically I want to focus on are Naaman and this little slave girl. First of all, let's look at Naaman. I already told you through the kids' sermon, Naaman was a pretty important guy. He knew everything I mean, I mean, not knew everything, but he was. There was pretty much not anything that he wasn't part of. He was almost like second in the kingdom. He was the right hand man to the king, and um, he had everything going for him except this disease. But the problem was, there was that disease literally was laying flat on his back. I mean, that disease was going to take him down, and there was nothing any human being could do. And so he was despondent. I mean, he was still doing his job, and he was still honored and revered. In Israelite communities, they would, he would have had to have gone into isolation. But in the Assyrian community, he didn't have to go into isolation. He was still a pretty big guy. But the reality was, he had a death sentence hanging over him, and there was nothing that could be done. Thanks, Aunt Ariel. I appreciate it. And so, I want, I want to look at what he does here. He hears this, there's this God... In Israel, who has the ability to bring healing, and he's the one that goes to the king. So, what does that tell us? That tells us that he must have believed this little girl that was in his household. And we'll look more about her in a minute. But, but obviously, Naaman put enough stock in what she said, or he was just so desperate—we don't know because we're not given that in the scriptures—that he literally went to the king and said, "I found one more hope." One more place that I can turn to try and get myself healed of this disease. Is it okay if I go? And the king, who again, we're not given this information in the scriptures, but according to what we can deduce, the king must have cared enough about Naaman and not only gave him permission to go, but he gave him a billion dollars worth of goods to go and persuade the king of Israel To make his God bring healing. Because see they could have said. Our God is our God. From their perspective. From the Assyrians perspective. They saw gods as regional gods. Israel knew and understood. Just as we know and understand. That God almighty. The God that we serve. Is not God of a region. But literally God of all people. But from Naaman's perspective. And the king of Assyria's Assyria's perspective. Um, they would have understood that the Israelites might have said, well, this is our God and he doesn't do anything for anybody but us. So that's the reason the king sets, sends this billion dollars worth of silver and gold and, and clothes. And then Naaman arrives and talks to the king because how else is he going to find Elisha? I mean, he doesn't know where he's at. He doesn't have a, you know, a big shingle hanging out outside of his door saying, Elisha the prophet! Healing done here. None of that. And so so Naaman goes, as a member of the court of Assyria, he goes to the court of Israel. 
And he goes before the king and he says, I have a message to you from the king. And the king reads the message. And then he says, thank you very much. And Naaman leaves. And then he goes, ah! What is this? How in the world? They're just trying to find a way to cause a war. That's literally what Jehoram, the king of, Je- of, of Israel, says at that point. And the thing I didn't share with the kids, but the thing you need to understand in this is that Jehoram was not a follower of God. He was a king of Israel. But if you look at this history, at the history of Israel at that point, Jehoram was not a good guy. Jehoram did not believe. So it wasn't like he was going, oh God, oh God, oh God, help us. He literally was just like, what in the world are we going to do? We're going to be attacked because there's nothing I can do. There's no God that can heal this. And then Elijah says, Elisha says, God, calm down. I mean, King, calm down. Calm down, King. God's got a handle on this. He can do it. Just send the guy to me. Okay. But look at what happened. There's this huge entourage of the number two guy in the kingdom of Assyria showing up at a hut. And the guy who is the prophet doesn't even have the courtesy to come out and go, Oh, name it, we're so thrilled to have you. Let's because see, in that culture, hospitality is a big deal. He offended Naaman big time by not coming out and welcoming him to his home, by not offering him the best that he had, not giving Naaman the opportunity to present his need, and then coming and saying, well, of course we're going to meet that need because our God is level. Elisha literally snubbed Naaman. And that could have been a source or cause of, 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 of um, strife between the two nations. Imagine the number two guy in a nation comes over and he needs something desperately and he goes to the only source that's present and available under the, under the direction and order of the king of the country and the second in this other country comes and the, the guy goes, just, I'll pray for you, but I'm not coming out. I'm too busy. I'm busy with whatever I'm doing. Just go dip in the water. You'll be fine. And the thing that's interesting is that Naaman's attitude, we can see, is one of haughtiness, one of arrogance, one of, I'm better than everybody else, and how dare you just tell me to do this stupid thing of dipping myself in that nasty water. Have you ever seen pictures of the Jordan? Anybody seen pictures of the Jordan? It's a brown river. It's kind of like the Tanana. It's all silty. It's not clear, clean running water. And that's what, that's what Naaman is saying. We've got beautiful rivers in our area, and they names the two, Pana and Farfar, whatever they are. But, and, and literally, he's like, if I'm going to go dip and be clean, wouldn't it be make more sense to go dip and be clean in clean water? He's got this arrogant, arrogant attitude of, I need something, you've got it, and you're not willing to give it to me except by, if I go through these stupid little tricks. Done. I quit. And he walks away. And isn't that stupid? This is a man who is literally dying of a disease and there is no hope for him. And he has come to his only hope. And he snubs it because of his haughty and arrogant attitude? Because of his pride? Does that make sense? But that's human nature. This is not an unusual response. Naaman is every man. Because if I have a need, and my need is great, and I only have one source, 
And I come to that source with all of the world's resources, a billion dollars, folks. He had a billion dollars in his pocket that he was going to give to Elisha. And the guy doesn't even have the courtesy to come out. And he walks. And the only reason he got healed was because someone in his group who had his ear was able to whisper in his ear and say, uh, you're making a fool of yourself here. Come on. I mean, think about it realistically. Put, put aside your issues. Put aside your arrogance. Put aside your pride. This guy is offering you what you've asked for, and all you have to do is one stupid little thing. Do it! Yeah, you're right. So when he calms down, he finally steps into the water, and he does it. Down and up. And think about it. If it was you, Seven times. And when I did the kid thing, I did it intentionally. Down. It's, it's not a, it, quick and easy coming up out of the water. Down and up. It takes some time. I would imagine down, up, examine. Down, up, examine. And how is the enemy working at this point? See? It's not happening. This is stupid. You're a fool. Look, you're making a fool of yourself. Go back where you belong and just live out what's left of your life and then die. Down, up, examine. Down, up, examine. But on the seventh time, finally, the power of God breaks out. And it's not just healing, but it's restoration. Have you ever heard the expression... God restoring that which the locusts have eaten. God's the only one who can do that, folks. Yes, you can be healed. Yes, you can have things righted. But God's the only one who can actually restore to brand new. And the thing that's so cool about this story is we see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it is, 14, being played out where, where Naaman becomes a new creature in Christ. Now, he doesn't know Jesus at this point because Jesus hasn't been manifested to the earth at this point. But it says right here in verse 15 of chapter 5, Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And he tries to give the billion dollars. I know that there is no God in anywhere except the God of Israel. So now let me give you the, the billion dollars. And Elisha is like, take your money and go home. God cannot and will not be bought. God cannot and will not be manipulated. And you cannot buy anything from God. He gives this to you out of his grace. Serve him. Love him. Honor him. Don't try to buy his favor. Now go. And what does he say? I will serve him the rest of my life. But I ask one thing. Two things. Give me some dirt. So that I can take the dirt of this land. Remember, they have this mindset of regional God. Give me some dirt from this land so that I can worship this God. And he takes the dirt home with him so he can set up an altar. But he says also, my job requires me to support the king as he goes into worship. The king literally rests himself or 
keeps his weight steady on my arm. And I have to escort him into the temple of our God. And so even though I'm serving the God of Israel, I have to go into the temple. It's part of my job. Please ask your God, our God, to ignore this. Because I'm not worshiping in there anymore. But I still have to go in there to honor my king, to do my job. And Elisha says, no, you heathen, when you get saved, you have to throw away all of your old stuff. That's not what he said. He said, go ahead. God's bigger than that. And see, that's, that's one of the truths that, I whispered, that was whispered to me as I was preparing this was, so often we try to teach new baby Christians that they have to let, make Jesus Lord long before they understand him as Savior. Have you ever heard the expression, why would you ever expect the world to act like anything other than the world? If they're not acting Christ-like and holy, they don't belong in church. What? <laughs> and new Christians who still struggle with old habits get ostracized because they're not holy people living lives of purity before God and the world. We need to disciple that in them. We need to help them. So when a brand new baby Christian comes to the person who led him to Christ and says, I've got to still live some of my old world because I'm not strong enough yet to say no to that. Please don't let that negate my relationship with God. And he says to him, it's okay. God's bigger, stronger, and able to deal with this. And I'm, he didn't say it, but I can assure you he said it in his heart. And at some point... God will bring you into a relationship strong enough where you'll be able to tell the king in an honoring way, I'll get someone else to do this for you. But I'm not going to pull the rug out from underneath you as you're just walking into your brand new faith. Yes, you can continue to walk that path. It's not a problem. God's bigger. And that's a truth we need to understand as Christians. Because so often we pull the rug out from underneath new Christians expecting them to live holy lives when they don't understand what holiness is. And that's God's job. Our job is to just speak truth to them and to love them. That's enough. Let me step off of that soapbox and get off that rabbit trail. Alright. So Naaman is now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follower of God. But he couldn't have gotten there if there wasn't a little girl in his household who had been stolen from her home. Now, we don't know, because the scriptures don't tell us, were her parents killed in a battle, and she was snatched up by a soldier and carried off into captivity? Was the whole house or the whole village snatched up and carried off into captivity? We don't know. All we know is that this little girl was ripped from everything she knew, and it does specifically say in verse 2, that it is a little girl. It's not a teenager, it's not a young woman, this is a little girl who was snatched out of her home, carried off by soldiers, and sold to Naaman, or given to Naaman, again, we don't know, to become a servant in his home. She had a number of choices, even though she was a little kid. She had a number of choices at her disposal as well. She could have been sullen. She could have been belligerent. She could have been disrespectful. She could have caused ruckus. But because she was in that house, because she was allowed to serve there, 
And because Naaman believed her when she said something, we have to be able to deduce that this little girl was leading a life that was honoring to God. Because God, the Holy Spirit, prompted her to say, Oh, I wish that my Lord would go to see the prophet in Samaria. Because then he could be healed. She was able to share her faith in a way that was believable and receivable by a total heathen who was at their lowest end in their life, who had reached the bottom. So she had lived her life in such a way that she was held in honor, she was respected, she was believed, and the end result was God used her testimony to bring about a miracle of healing, but also a regeneration of a soul into the kingdom of God. Okay. So all of this, wrapping it up nicely in a little bow. We have two ordinary people living ordinary lives. A young girl who was stolen out of her home and had come to a new normal. Not things, none of the things in her life were what she would have chosen. None of the things in her life would, would have been what she would have called good, necessarily, until she was able to come to the point where she accepted that this is what God had allowed in her life, and she was going to continue to serve God regardless of what was going on. And as a result, God then was able to use her testimony. Number two, if you take the time, don't do it now, but if you take the time later on to look up Luke 4.27, Luke 4.27, Jesus is speaking in his first sermon in the village of Nazareth, after he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says, this prophecy is being fulfilled in your hearing, and then he begins preaching to the synagogue. And he says in 427, no lepers in all of northern Israel were healed by under Elijah's ministry, except for Naaman. And what that was, was an indictment against the Israelites, saying, you didn't even have enough confidence in my abilities and my leadership and my holiness to trust me to bring healing. The only one was an outsider. So what does that say? That says that Elisha was not known for bringing about healing. Okay? See, we always got this mindset that, oh, well, everyone, of course, knows that Elisha does healing. That's why he went there. Jesus said, for Luke, 20, Luke 4, 27, No one in all of Israel under Elisha's ministry was healed of leprosy except for Naaman. So that was not a known thing or a common thing. So what was this little girl referring to? She was referring to her trust in God. She wasn't offering hope for healing. She was saying, I know a God who can bring about healing. And Naaman latched on to the healing and was seeking that. And the end result was, not only did he get the healing, but he came to know the, the source of the healing. So his, his goal was to be healed, but he ultimately became a new creature. And so the truth that I see here for us, again, the little girl who lived the life that you're, led, that you're placed in. You know, I'm not saying you can't try to better yourself, but I am saying accept where you're at and trust that God knows what he's doing and trust that God is sovereign. And number two... Be aware 
that there are people in our community who are dying. They may not show it on the outside, but they're dying. And you have the hope contained within your heart. And you have the relationship developed with them through your years of friendship, camaraderie, co-workership, whatever. That when the moment is right and the Spirit of God prompts it, you can speak the truth to them to point them to their last hope. It's still up to them to make that choice. But God is always wooing. God is always drawing. And so as I close, I want to just ask two things. Number one, if you're a Christian, there's got to be somebody right now that God has been priming that relationship between you and them so that you can speak that truth. Who is it? Who is God putting on your heart right now, right this moment? What was the name that popped into your head or what was the face that popped into your head? You don't have to say it out loud. But that's the person you should begin from this moment forward praying, God, give me opportunity to speak truth. God, help me to point them to you. Use me in a powerful way to proclaim the gospel to that person so that they can become a new creature in Christ. And it may be that you have to point them in an an odd direction to get them to God. You know, it may be that this is a way for you to get that need met, ultimately come to know Jesus. Who is that person? Begin praying now that God would enable you to speak truth to them. And then the the second question, the last one is, if you're the person sitting here who, like Naaman, has tried everything but, and you now recognize that you really have not been living the life that God would have you live, that that you've sought after everything else, and you've never really made God God, This is a moment for you. This is your coming out of the water the seventh time and recognizing the newness that God can bring to you. This is your opportunity. And I would encourage you to not leave this room before you make it right before God. And how do you do that? Number one, you acknowledge and recognize that you have sinned against God. You have offended God. Number two, you repent of that sin. That means you turn turn around, turn away from it. Number three, you confess it. And number four, you trust God to heal you and to cleanse you from your sin and to bring you into right relationship with Him. And if that's you this morning, don't leave this building before you do it. And after you do, come and talk to me and let me know that you made it right between you and God. Let's pray.